0: The one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadows. We say
1: yeah. We say yeah. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 16 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in semi chronological order. This month, we're joined once again by Pat Murphy, writer for The Beat Magazine, among other publications. We'll be talking about the Wonderful Land single and two EPs, Spotlight on the Shadows and Wonderful Land of the Shadows. But first, let's get to some feedback from our last episode with Jamie Kay, host of the Jungle Room podcast, when we reviewed The Young Ones, both the film and the soundtrack album. First up, we heard from Ronald, who writes, Keep up the wonderful work. I enjoy your podcasts a lot. It's such a great wealth of information for a Cliff fan. Yesterday, I finished The Dreamer, an audiobook read by Cliff, and I thank you for the recommendation some weeks ago. P.S. I wonder, did you ever get a sort of response to your work from Sir Cliff himself? I could imagine that he would appreciate it a lot. Best wishes from Berlin, Ronald ronald i would assume that sir cliff or any of the shadows have no idea that this podcast even exists this might actually be a good thing otherwise i might have received a cease and desist letter by now still one can hope one can hope who knows what the future will bring bjarn hansen writes as a tween i went to see the young ones when it premiered at a local theater in copenhagen in early 1962 and was so taken by the movie that I stuck around for the second showing that evening. I was already familiar with many Cliff songs up until then, but that night I became a lifelong fan with some 28 LPs and 29 CDs at last count. P.S. I agree with Jamie Kay and her remarks about Cliff Richard not being comparable to Ricky Nelson, and I do have the 32-track Rocking With Ricky CD, covering his 1957-1962 recordings. I agree. I have a lot of respect for Ricky Nelson, and I'm surprised there isn't a Ricky Nelson podcast because I would subscribe to it and listen to it. But yeah, Cliff is a very different kind of singer and performer, and I think um, the similarities are really on the surface level. Tim Cooper writes, "'Just finished listening to your latest podcast. Very interesting. Amazed at some of the facts you come out with. Wonder what actual writing Cliff's manager did on the We Say Yeah song.'" Good idea in getting a fellow Yank, I hope it's still politically correct to use that term, who has never seen the film up to now to comment on it. Thank you so much, Tim, and I can assure you that we as Americans historically love being called Yanks. In fact, I'm speaking to you not 10 miles from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, so it's far from a pejorative in this neighborhood at least. Jmo on the Beat writes, I enjoyed this one a lot. Personally, to me, there would have been no way Elvis would do a musical like Cliff's, especially since Elvis was about, I think, five years older than Cliff. I did enjoy mostly Elvis's early movies before that movie formula was overused. It can be said almost the same about Cliff movies when Wonderful Life came around, but I still enjoyed it regardless. By the way, Jmo on the Beat will be on our next show along with Paul PJ Shakespeare, so stick around for that. Thanks so much for all of these comments, everybody, and you too can join the discussion at We Say Yeah Podcast at gmail.com. That's the email address, We Say Yeah Podcast at gmail.com, and join us over on our Facebook page called simply. We say yeah. Also, when you do a search of Cliff Richard or The Shadows on Apple Podcasts, this show doesn't even come up as an option. It's not even in the searches, and that's because we have so few reviews on Apple Podcasts for this show. So. I'm asking all of you out there, if you enjoy the show, even if you don't really at this point, I'll take any reviews, leave us a review. I don't know how many stars it'll take to get some kind of a presence there, but, um, if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. All right. As I mentioned, journalist Pat Murphy is back with us again. This time we're talking about two EPs and a very significant single by the shadows. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons this selection of singles and EPs, all released in the span of a very short period of time, just a few months, is, is so interesting, this is where things get a little confusing when it comes to personnel. Yes,
0: uh, yes. Yeah. You start with the original quartet of The Shadows, uh, Hank, Bruce, Jet Harris, and uh, Tony Meehan, and then, of course, Tony disappears and, uh, from the group. And right. then, uh, um, what was it, uh, maybe six months later, Jet disappears. Yes. And uh, you get Brian Bennett and uh, Brian Locking. Uh, Brian Locking, uh, whom uh, I don't know if I mentioned to you before, We I, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing some years ago. He, of course, didn't really last that long because, um, well, it was, I mean, he has always insisted that uh, his decision to leave was his, nobody else's. And, no reason not to believe him. Uh, But uh, then, of course, in November '63, uh, John Rostell came along and uh, stayed until the original breakup.
1: It's interesting that the introduction of Brian occurs in public at this event that they held for Cliff's 21st birthday, right before they leave for Australia. You've got the newsreel and you've got Tony there posing with the rest of the guys, so it yes. looks like it looks like business as usual. And yeah. then all of a sudden, here's Brian and Tony's Tony's gone. It's the most polite changing of the guard. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah.
0: Now I, I don't know if you uh, if you read um, Bruce Walsh's uh, autobiography, but uh, in it he makes uh, it clear that uh, basically Tony was fired. Um, although that's not what the uh, the press, uh, the music press said at the time. They said, you know, that Tony was going to pursue other interests. But the story that Bruce tells is that Tony's timekeeping was so absolutely dreadful that they didn't want to be depending on him anymore because he wasn't dependable.
1: And that's also in the story of the Shadows book. It's maybe put a little more nicely in that that book because Tony was involved. But yeah, it seems like it's really Bruce and Tony that were at Loggerheads. Yes. So let's talk about that original quartet for just a moment because the single Wonderful Land, the A-Side, Stars Fell on Stockton, the B-Side, the A-Side which is written by Jerry Lorden, the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to The Shadows. This was recorded way, way back in May of 61. That's and then for some reason it was held over and it was, I suppose, Nori Paramore's grand idea to put strings on it. And lo and behold, in early 62, it comes out and it's a huge hit and it's as much a signature song for The Shadows as Apache is.
0: The story that was actually um, circulating at the time was that, although it was recorded in May 1961, the Shadows felt that it it was missing something, it it sounded thin. And uh, allegedly, although again, and I, I stress allegedly here, the original idea to broaden out the sound was Tony Meehan's. Uh, but um, it wasn't he, of course, who did it. It was Nori Paramore who did it, and it was done in, about uh, well, mid-January 1962. And, yes, uh, I, I, I actually fully remember when the, when the record was first released. It was considered to be something of a sensation, like it added another dimension, as it were, to the shadow sound. Now, um, it wasn't actually quite as... Uh, as revolutionary as it may have seemed, because um, oh, what was it? Maybe pushing two years earlier, Dwayne Eddy yes. had done something similar. What because they're young, uh, where the uh, the theme song from that uh, the theme tune, I guess, from that uh, movie, he had done his usual rumbling guitar thing, but they had uh, fleshed it out with strings, which at the time really made it stand out. Of months before wonderful land the original recording of the theme song from the young ones uh was fleshed out with strings as well still uh, we, i fully remember wonderful land being uh, released and uh, i think the official chart put it as eight weeks at number one my recollection is that the new musical express which was really what people paid most attention to then probably put it at nine weeks at number one it was very very big
1: I can see where Tony would be the guy, maybe to have that initial idea, because he's the only member of the Shadows who was playing on the Nori Paramore Orchestra recordings with Cliff on "Listen to Cliff" and "Cliff Sings."
0: That's uh, that's true. Yeah, yep.
1: and then of course he went into that field himself with with Decca.
0: He so, did indeed, and yeah. uh, he was. Uh, I mean, and, and of course there was the Jet and Tony combination, and then uh, Tony continued in the music business, actually. Uh, himself, but uh he never apart from the very brief diamonds uh scarlet o'Hara a uh, bit with uh, with the jet and tony combo he never scaled the heights anymore
1: interestingly, Brian Bennett gets into composing and he's very successful
0: oh, uh, at yeah. doing that Brian and tony were i think um really quite different drummers. Uh, Tony was terrific. I mean, uh, you can actually particularly hear it on some of the tracks from the their first Shadows album. But um, Brian, um, um, although he was different, the Shadows didn't actually lose anything with Brian's arrival. And, of course, Brian stayed right through.
1: Yeah, I think when Brian comes along, they don't, I almost hate to say it, it's, it's so corny, but they don't miss a beat. Uh-huh. Uh, they n- yeah.
0: no. And Brian, as you probably know, also became a um, legal partner in the Shadows. Uh, Initially, when he was uh, hired to replace Tony, he was a salaried member. And uh, he was, as he tells the story, he was making twice uh, the weekly salary that he had been making uh, as sort of a drummer for hire before. And... um, because uh, of uh, his involvement with the Shadows, his writing talent got got used, so therefore there was uh, uh, lots of, uh, of uh, royalties to be, composer royalties to be had from that. But uh, when the, the story goes, and Brian, I believe, is the source of this, uh, when the, um, the Shadows talked about getting back together again in the mid-70s, uh, Brian was all for it, except he said he wanted to be a full-fledged one-third partner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, those songwriting credits happen pretty quickly, because on the flip side of Wonderful Land, he's credited for, uh, along with you know, Bruce, Hank, and Jett, for, for stars, stars
0: Fell in Stockton. Yep. Yes, yep. The, the wacky uh, uh,
1: whistling song.
0: <laughs> yeah, and in fact, um, it's, my impression very strongly is that that The Stars Fell in Stockton session, which was done in December of 61, was Brian's first actual recording session with the shadows. same session, the tune uh, Tales of a Raggy Tramline, which was included on the second Shadows album, was also um, done that day.
1: You know, we talk a lot about the Shadows' sense of humor, and I'm wondering, and this is just purely speculation, setting aside the issues Bruce had with Tony, I wonder if one of the reasons Brian was so successful as a member of the Shadows was because his sense of humor may have fit in. A little better with Hank, Bruce, and uh, Jet? Uh,
0: I wouldn't be surprised uh, at all that uh, uh, you're actually right on that uh, because, certainly, to the best of my record, well, I'm going to walk that back. Um, Nivram, of course, uh, which predated Brian's arrival, uh, had that little touch and humor. And Tony's drum solo uh, track on the first album was called I'd See You In My Drums. Right. But uh, it certainly became more pronounced after, uh, after Brian's arrival.
1: So let's return for a moment to that original quartet because we're going to talk about an EP called Spotlight on the Shadows. Yes. Released in February of 62. This is another number one for eight weeks situation. Uh, It
0: was, yeah, yeah. and 60 weeks on the uh, EP charts, too.
1: We've talked in the past on this program about these songs, but I wanted to get your impression, especially of the two songs on side two. But let's start with side one, The Frightened City, written by Nori Paramore from the film of the same name.
0: a very um, um, atmospheric kind of thing. It had this uh, almost um, stalking sense to it, a slightly ominous sense to it. And um, the movie, as you... And I'm sure you know that it was actually... uh, that the material came from. The Shadows didn't actually play it on the soundtrack. Right. Uh, And um, it was also... um, I, I almost called it an early Sean Connery vehicle, mm. uh, but it wasn't a Sean Connery vehicle. It was uh, he, he appeared in it, <laughs> right. but um, I listened to it um, just again this afternoon, and um, at the time, people tended to basically focus on, they would think of the shadows and they think of Hank. Right. I mean, they knew there were three others and all that but um, it was Hank was the dominant sound of the shadows. But uh, when you listen to some of the stuff now, uh, the, the various other players' contributions become uh, more obvious, and uh, Tony's contribution to uh, the Frightened City was, um, this afternoon anyway, it sounded very prominent.
1: What about Contiki, written by Michael Carr?
0: Yeah, Contiki actually um, came out as a single in, at the end of the summer of 1961, uh, and uh, you're, you're completely right. It was uh, it was um, written by Michael Carr, who also wrote Men of Mystery. But Michael Carr went way, way back. Uh, he was um, he was born at. I think, in Leeds in England, but he was brought up for a chunk of his childhood in Dublin, Ireland. And he uh, formed a songwriting partnership with uh, Jimmy Kennedy. Jimmy Kennedy basically m- mostly wrote the lyrics, and uh, Michael Carr wrote the, mostly wrote the melodies. And, for example, among the things they did were the famous, you know, South of the Border, down Mexico, yes. where that's theirs and um, there's a story uh, that when Gene Autry the singing cowboy was um, on a European tour just prior to uh, the Second World War he played a a hugely successful week at a a Dublin theatre which at the time was probably the largest or second largest theatre in Europe and the story is that um, Kennedy and Carr kind of wangled the way in to see him and uh played uh, South of the Border for him, and uh, he liked it. And uh, when he went back to the States, he, uh, he recorded it, and it became the title for one of his, his assembly line movies. And now as I wander, my thoughts ever stray, South of the Border, down
1: Mexico way. So we'll flip this EP over and let's concentrate on the two songs on side two and the reason I want to spend some time on both Peace Pipe and The Savage. These are songs that were heard in the film The Young Ones and on our previous episode, we really didn't go in depth on these two instrumentals. So let's start with Peace Pipe. Both of these songs, by the way, written by Nori Paramore. Peace Pipe is my favorite Shadows track.
0: It's a very nice piece, and um, uh, it, uh, as, you, as you refer to it, was used in the, the Young Ones and the uh, initial youth club sequence. And uh, it, I always found it uh, had a very sort of very gentle sense to it, but it's very, very effective. And uh, it kind of plays to that quiet, melodic ambience that uh, the shadows came back to many, many... Uh, Many, many more times. It was it was recorded uh, at a session, well, the same session as the Savage. But on that same very same session, uh, another tune that we're going to talk about, I believe, thirty six twenty four thirty six, was yes. also recorded. Uh, so it was a very productive day.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. And it's funny every time I see Nari Paramore's name attached to a, a Shadows recording, I I feel like I I have to go back and look at one of his earlier albums to find out if it's something that's been repurposed. That's not Mm -hmm. the case here. This was written specifically for the film, from what I understand.
0: It was, yeah.
1: Yeah, although he did record it later on a record called The Shadows in Latin.
0: did a couple of those latin albums in the um mid-60s one was uh uh the shadows latin and the other was a latinized um, set of cliff uh, numbers and uh they were on um, a uh, special label that um emi had i can't remember the name of the label now but it was uh sound superb or something like that but like it was meant to be a niche
1: uh, thing yeah it was certainly niche i listened to it um you know it's, it's okay for for what it is um the savage interestingly this was a hit record i mean this was a, a number 10 record Re- it was yeah, yeah and number
0: nine in the Music express yeah. may
1: 25th 61 and the shadows were not pleased with this record
0: shadows were never actually consulted on the release of the record. They were actually touring in Australia with Cliff at the time the decision to release the record uh, was concerned, and uh, they were reported as being very... unhappy with it and of course the fact that it didn't do as well commercially although it was top ten it didn't do as well commercially as the uh, singles immediately preceding it probably contributed to their unhappiness as well I actually think it's a great great number Uh, it's a particular um, tour de force for Bruce and um, I have seen him play it live several times I've seen him play it live with the Shadows uh, and I've seen him play it live a couple of times in the early 2000s with, uh, when they put on a uh, Shadow Mania event in Toronto. And, uh, you know, uh, watching him sort of his uh, his uh, right-hand work its uh, yeah. <laughs> on the number, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but uh, I actually like it. I think it holds up very well. And it was a very effective visual sequence in the young ones as well.
1: Yeah, the the single with uh, The Savage and Peace Pipe came out before the film, so maybe the thinking was this would be like a little promotion for...
0: Yeah, the there, were, there were actually... The first single that was issued from the film was actually the, When the Girl in Your arms, oh, right. The Girl in Your Heart, which was beginning of October. Then I think it was mid to late November or whatever that The Savage was issued, and then the movie was uh, had its... Um, Premiere in uh, early December, the eighth of December, I think it was.
1: So spotlight on the shadows. Uh, it's a you can't go wrong. There's not a bad not a bad cut no. on it.
0: And indeed, back then the the shadows could probably be just reasonably described as the kings of the EP chart. Mm. Uh, now, I'm not saying that any individual EPs sold on the same quantity as, say. Uh, The Beatles, Twist and Shout, or or whatever, because they didn't. But if you look at the heyday of the EP charts, which was basically the uh, first half of the 60s, the Shadows racked up more weeks on the chart than anybody, anybody. And um, when I say that, I'm not even including the weeks, although some tabulations do this, but I'm not including the weeks they spent back in Cliff. I'm actually just their weeks, Sometimes they had multiple EPs in the uh, chart at the same time.
1: So we'll move ahead to a single, another format they did well in, "Guitar Tango," written by Norman Maine and George Liferman, I believe is the pronunciation. Yes. This was recorded on June eighteenth, nineteen sixty-two, and this is where it gets confusing again because I think Brian Licorice Locking is on this track, right?
0: He had joined in uh, after Jet Harris left in in April of '62, and of course, Guitar Tango was um, originally in, in its French version. It was actually a vocal. Obviously, that's not how the Shadows did it. But the basic track, which is the the four guys, was done in uh, late May, and then um, Norrie Paramore added the overdubs in, um, um, as you say, on the 18th of, of June. But this uh, record was actually um, quite i won't i won 't call it controversial, but I will say that it generated a lot of speculation when it was first released because of course Hank plays acoustic guitar on it hmm. uh, and um, he uh, purportedly bought a flamenco guitar, especially for the session but um, whereas Wonderful land was The basic, like it was the recognizable Shadows sound augmented by the stuff that Nori Paramore added to it. Uh, Guitar Tango, if you weren't told it was the Shadows, you wouldn't have known it was the Shadows. Because uh, of uh, Hank's acoustic lead, it didn't sound like the Shadows uh, at all. I don't know whether it was Brian Locking's first recording session with them, but it was certainly the first single that... um, that he appeared on. And uh, at the time, the um, reviewers, the speculation, the discussion point uh, was whether or not they had really gone too far here. But uh, (laughs) it was uh, commercially uh, very successful. When I talked to Brian Locking, um, this is back 2006, uh, he particularly, uh, well, I guess guitar tango was important to him because it was the first shadow single that he appeared on but uh he also um, talked to me about how nori paramour made such a difference that he could um he could listen to something and um envisage that we can augment this with though in this case castanets and all sorts of stuff and it'll enrich uh, significantly the whole thing and certainly um um that happened with Guitar Tango. And there was on, um, on British TV at the time a program called Jukebox Jury, which was on Saturday evenings at 6.30 or something like that. And you'd have a panel. Uh, I was going to call them a panel of celebrities, but maybe they're not necessarily celebrities, but they would be people that, that the public would know a bit. They might be a, a film actor or various presenters people like that and the idea of the program was that they would um preview a selection of the pet week's uh, new releases and they would be asked to vote to comment on them and vote hit or miss and um when guitar tango was played uh, there was um a, my recollection is that it was voted a hit but there was a Thought of "Mm, what is this? (laughs) Like this isn't this isn't what it's supposed to be. (laughs) You make it a hit or a miss, Jerry. Uh huh. Well, they make
1: it undoubtedly a hit. So, on we go to the next one. I can only imagine what their reaction would have been like if they had flipped this record over and heard the B side. What a lovely tune, written by Bruce, Hank, and Brian. This is Brian Bennett's vocal debut on a Shadows record, and it's more of a comedy sketch than a song.
0: Oh, I'm sorry about that. Oh, well, we may as well go and dance again. What? Hey, say a lovely
1: tune. you wonder who wrote it.
0: It is indeed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure he ever vocalised after that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, believe it or not, um, it didn't get any radio play at the time uh, because, well, most B-sides didn't. And I never heard it until um, oh, it would be sometime in the late 80s. Uh, Back in the days when you had um, um, 8-track tapes and cassettes, Mm. uh, I bought a, for the car, I bought a um, Shadows in the 60s 8-track. And um, it included on it, what a lovely tune, which was the first time I ever heard it, which would have been... uh, Oh, gee, it was almost thirty years uh, after the time it was released. But it, it, yeah, it's um, it's humorous. It's uh, it's tongue in cheek. Uh, I think it's meant to um, evoke the atmospherics of what they believe they used to call a tea dance. Right. And you have this sort of very posh uh, guy uh, trying his luck and uh, striking out. And uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is it, it, it's an amusing. Um, um, an enjoyable piece. I'm not sure one would play it very often, but
1: yeah. It, so, sometimes when I hear it, I think this is something that maybe the Bonzo Dog Band would have done. Uh, yeah, it's that type of type of record. So we'll move on to the last EP that we're going to discuss today. Two of the songs we already talked about, so we don't have to get into them again. But uh, "Wonderful Land of the Shadows" this EP went to number six. It
0: did, and uh, I, I actually bought it. Mm. The day it was, um, it was the only Shadows EP that I actually ever uh, owned. Uh, you know, because uh, money was scarce in those right. days. Uh, but uh, I bought it, and yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was really good.
1: I know that sometimes the EPs will be, and certainly this is the case with a couple of Cliff EPs, where they basically just took two singles and put them together. And I oh, like yeah. to, I like to look at the EPs where. it's a little more creative than that and they pull in some other tracks so basically you've got The Wonderful Land single both sides but uh, Wonderful Land track one on side one and then Midnight uh, which is Hank and Bruce and their kind of pastiche I suppose of Sleepwalk
0: Yes, yes. Um, uh, Midnight, um, I, I won't say I didn't like it, uh, but it was the only track of the four in the EP that didn't uh, really impress me. Uh, it, it was too imitative of uh, Sleepwalk. And uh, I liked Sleepwalk back in 1959 when it was first released, Santo and Johnny. But um, this it seemed just too derivative of... Um, of Sleepwalk, and uh, I found it—I um, uh, know one isn't supposed to say this, I suppose—but I found it almost kind of, sort of boring. And hmm. uh, now the story is, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, that uh, Cliff was impressed by it and wanted them to put lyrics to it, which they—they um, they never did. And I—I uh, hey, think so. I think that was a good idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think so too. So. The last song that we'll talk about, as we flip the EP over, Stars Fell on Stockton starts off Side 2. Again, I always think of, this is a recurring motif, I guess, with Shadows titles. They'll always take something that that to them would have sounded exotic, like Stars Fell on Alabama, and make it Stars Fell on Stockton. Um, But the last cut that we'll discuss, there's always a story regarding these songs, and whether or not it's true, I don't know. But the story that I've read in several places is that 362436, written by All of the Shadows, the original quartet, recorded on May 25th, 1961, this was inspired by the measurements of Peter Gormley's secretary.
0: believe that. In fact, back then, back then, it was um, commonplace to um, talk about uh, measurements and 362436 um, uh, 36 was uh, in many, in, in much of the, the, if I'll use the term conversation about it, was considered to be the Perfect set of measurements. Now, uh, I very much doubt how they anybody would have known that those were the precise measurements of Peter Gormley's secretary. Uh, but um, if they were, uh, but yes, uh, I would imagine that uh, that story uh, is uh, at least, insofar as it relates to um, the title referring to measurements, uh, I'm sure that's completely and, 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 and totally true. <laughs> Um, it's all it was also um, um i believe at least in part inspired by tequila
1: yes. you know
0: the um the the champs record. It has, yeah. Uh, but i i love it i love it to this day actually in fact uh, although i'm very fond of the um the contiki a side uh if you if i had to choose between them i'd actually choose this the uh, the b um it's um it has, uh, it's got great Jet Harris base work in it. Yes. It's a fun track and it stands up, I think, very, very well.
1: I thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast again. Where can people go to catch up with your articles and what you've been doing?
0: Well, I presume what people listen to this podcast might be interested in would be the music articles. And uh, uh, they all uh, uh, appear in The Beat. And uh, The Beat is now um, most of their... um, I won't say always, but most of them now actually appear in their online version. Uh, Now, I do a a beat piece once a month, so uh, they're not by any means all uh, Cliff or Cliff and the Shadows or the Shadows uh, um, uh, centered. They're about uh, all sorts of things. For example, there will be one for uh, October dealing with... uh, Tommy Steele's Golden Year, um, Tommy Steele was actually the first rock and roll British idol domestically. Mm. Uh, although, you know, people say, well, he didn't do real rock and roll. Well, and that's actually, that can be true. It was a kind of a skiffle rock sort of thing. But I can tell you that people uh, living there at the time uh, really f- considered it to be rock and roll. And the amazing thing was the um, the, the BBC, which um, really wanted nothing to do with rock and roll in 1956-57. Uh, they actually recognized uh, his um, public prominence and importance by uh, they, they broadcast a 60-minute TV special. Uh, on october the 11th 1957 which was uh, meant to commemorate his tommy's first year and they called it the golden year
1: oh
0: anyway that's far more than anybody ever wanted to know (laughs) i'm sure
1: Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed that discussion with Pat Murphy about the spotlight on the Shadows EP, The Wonderful Land of the Shadows EP, and The Wonderful Land single. And next month, it's two more EPs. We'll be discussing a Cliff EP with J-Mo on the beat, and we'll be discussing a Shadows EP with Paul P.J. Shakespeare. That'll be next month on the program. Again, if you want to uh, send us an email, it's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com join us over on facebook look for we say yeah the page for the show on facebook there's also the twitter account we say yeah there's plenty of ways to get in touch with us so until next month take care and uh, we'll see you soon